celebrating success, learning from legends, and growing poppies. This is Tall Poppy Talk with Grace Lewis. Kia ora and welcome to Tall Poppy Talk. Today we have Martin Toomey. He is the Chief Executive of Winter Games NZ, Director of High Performance Sport NZ, Managing Director of Performance Plus Aotearoa, and the Chief Demission for the New Zealand team at the 2022 Beijing Olympic Winter Games. And he's been appointed to fill the same role, not only in 2024 at the Youth Olympic Winter Games, but also in 2026 at the Olympic Winter Games. So he's got a lot going on. With over 30 years in high-performance sport, 20 years in senior management, and 20 years of governance, before then also switching into snow sports, he has spent 10 years at the helm of government agency Sport NZ, and he was also an All Blacks fitness trainer from 1992 to 1999. We've got a lot going on here, Martin, and you've worked with individual athletes and teams at the club, provincial and international levels, not only as a coach or a fitness trainer, but as a sports scientist, performance director, systems designer, and leading the helm, literally. So with all this incredible knowledge and vast experience, it's really such an honor to welcome you today to Tall Poppy Talk. So Martin, where are you and how are you today? Hey, kia ora, Grace. Hey, thanks for the invitation. Look, I love being on and talking about things. I think like all Kiwis, you know, the one thing that makes me squirm is hearing about me. It's just, uh, it's funny, my career is just, it's happened. It's unfilled in front of me. Most of the roles I had didn't actually exist. They weren't advertised. I didn't, you know, didn't apply for them. Um, Some have, but a lot of them, it's just been because you're in the right place at the right time and you've got a bit of a skill set or a bit of experience and knowledge that gets you there so I'm very very fortunate to be sitting where I am and I'm sitting in the beautiful Wanaka so living in amongst the mountains and by the lake um yeah stunning part of Aotearoa and somewhere I, I love bringing out family I think Wanaka is absolutely without a doubt one of the most beautiful places to be so I love to hear that and as you just touched upon you have had a lot of different roles that aren't your typical apply here, right? And I know your first role was with New Zealand Rugby Union and that was more in the training fitness advisor. And then there's like this transition to Team New Zealand with sailing. I'm like, okay, but you've got over 30 years in the game of high-performance sport and plenty more to come. So could you please outline your career journey and kind of your personal experience with high-performance sport? Yeah, it, it's an interesting, I loved sport from a young age, obviously, all sports. So I was a jack of, you know, jack of all trades, master of none as an athlete. And so my way of actually trying to get to the very top level in sport was to actually work with other athletes that had more ability than I did. So it was, I realised that pretty early on. I think I was aware of my own limitations. So I started off, uh, did a phys ed degree at Otago Uni. Um, and then did a master's degree following on from that and set up what was called the Human Performance Centre. And it was just a consulting agency within Otago University that used the facilities and the knowledge of all the lecturers when students went there. So it was trying to connect them with different sports groups. One thing led to another. I started working with Otago Rugby. Um, Laurie Mains had actually coached me at uh, age grade Otago Rugby level. So I was from Dunedin originally. Um, and through that, it progressed. He became the All Black coach. He asked me to come with him through on that journey. 
And so I spend eight years there, the, uh, the um, physio and the doctor for the All Blacks at the time uh, were also working with Team New Zealand. And so by working with them, I then started working with Team New Zealand at the same time too, and we shared a couple of sponsors. So that's how those things happen. And years and years on the road, um, traveling around the world, some incredible experiences and saw some amazing things, worked with some amazing people. And then I guess, uh, you know, kids came along and it was time to stop living out of a suitcase eight months a year and got into the uh, working for what was the New Zealand Sports Foundation, then became the New Zealand Academy of Sport, then became High Performance Sport New Zealand and spent 10 years working my way through the year to uh, be running in the high performance side when I left, left there to come to um, Snow Sports New Zealand as the chief executive, did six years in that role. And then I, uh, I took on the chief executive role of Winter Games, so running an international snow sports event in Queenstown and Wanaka every year. And so that's kind of where I got to. And along the way, one thing I did apply for was that chef to mission role for the, uh, you know, for the Beijing Winter Olympics. I'd been to a number, in, I guess, in my role for high-performance sport New Zealand. I'd been to a number of summer and winter Olympic Games, Commonwealth Games, so, you know, I mean, that, and love for sport and high performance sport and seeing the best of the best in action, you just can't beat it. So I thought, again, I'm never going to be a, someone who could ski at the Winter Olympics. How can I get there? Here's the opportunity. So, yeah, we, we got through Beijing, which was an interesting Games in itself. And then, um, yeah, really looking forward to Milano. So, well, Gangwon and Korea for the Youth Olympics first and then off to, you know, Milano in 2026. So that's me in a nutshell. And... Oh, wow, I have so many things just running through my brain. <laughs> Mainly it's like, okay, 2024, it's going to be here before we know it because April's already here. And then 2026, like, there's so many moving parts and I'll get into that later of like, how do you keep on top of it? Because I really like that you've identified this is the environment I want to be in. I want to be in the high levels. Maybe I'm a realistic that I won't be the athlete there, but there's so many other moving parts that make people function at high performance like you don't get high performers without a high performing system and you probably know that <laughs> best um I then want to ask and you kind of touched upon like this evolving nature of even your role and you know names of different institutions until we arrive at high performance sport New Zealand but how do you define high performance doesn't need to be specific to sport you know, there's high performers across, but yeah, what's your definition of high performance? I think for me, high performance is around the pursuit of excellence. You know, you're trying to be, and excellence for an individual might not be being the best in the world, but it's excellence for them is doing the best they can possibly do on a given day in a given competition. So I think it's trying to be the very best version of yourself is about, you know, high performing. And as I say, that, that can be being the, the best me that becomes the best person in my club or region, maybe in the nation, maybe then taking on and beating the world. And that's, everyone has different definitions of it, but I think it's all around chasing excellence or the best that you can possibly be. I like that. And that's not being the best, it's being the best version of you. That's a yeah. very important distinction. It is a very important distinction. And again, I mean, you hear people talking about, you know, in that focus on the process and the outcome will take care of itself. I, I do believe in that. You know, I mean, if people 
I think if you've got a goal and a desire that's outcome focused, that's fine. But park it and do everything you can to get there because then if you don't make it, you may be the best possible version of yourself, but someone's better. You can't do anything about that. That's controlling the controllable bits and you can be the best you and then you've really just got to put yourself out there and see how you stack up against anyone else. Yeah, because especially I suppose with a lot of the winter games, right, is you can't play defense on other people and I have so much respect and admiration especially for the skiing like I couldn't I do not I've tried and I, I don't have the coordination or the confidence to be that brave so to speak but they can go and do all that and they can train and they can compete but yet to your point you can't control all the elements you can't control your competitors you just have to tip your hat to them be like nice knowing you yeah. did your best yeah and, and I think um it's actually one of the things I love about snow sports and, you know, the Winter Olympics, you saw it when um, Zoe Sadowski sent it, won her gold medal in the slope style and got mobbed by all the fellow competitors. It's, they, they recognise the fact that you can't control everything. You know, so you've got weather variables, you've got snow, you're literally on ice, you know, it's, it's slippery. You're trying to do tricks. If you land, you know, two millimetres off, you're lying on the ground. And so they... When someone does something brilliant, everyone acknowledges it. So it's different to a lot of other sports, which are really intensely competitive in the rivalries, cut deep and athletes don't work together. The snow sports and the, almost the Winter Olympics in general, there's a different feel to them. They, uh, it's a, hard to describe, but it, it's actually very, very cool. It's a, something that you know, you're very proud to be part of. Yeah, it sounds almost, when I think of snow sports or winter games in general, I think of daredevils or people <laughs> people wanting to see like where the limit is. And so to your yeah. point, when someone gets it, even if it's not them, yeah, I, I get what you're saying and I can't quite put my finger on it, but it's a special environment I can imagine. And I yeah. guess when you made that transition to join this environment, did you notice some of those things straight away? Like, okay, it's a, it's a little different here. Yeah, it's, uh, again, I was, I was lucky or fortunate through position. I'd been able to go to the, um, I went to the Vancouver Winter Olympics in 2010 and watching some of that, you know, when I, uh, you know, so I saw some incredible games of ice hockey. New Zealand wasn't competing in that, but I saw some of that. And you just see that, that tribal passion, which is what we have for some of our sports in New Zealand, which was really cool. But then going and looking at the freestyle skiing out events or the, the moguls and aerials and just watching people really acknowledge each other's performance, it was, you could, you could feel it. And so it was actually really cool. And I think what has been pretty special in New Zealand in the last kind of 12 years is we're getting into disciplines that don't have hundreds of years of history. So you don't have, you know, if you look at your traditional winter sports and you've got your... Um, Alpine ski racing been around for a very long time. It's about hundreds of seconds. It's precision. Whereas in these other disciplines at the moment, people are progressing still hugely year on year. And so it's the whole, the whole world is growing with the sports. And so there's a constant progression. So I think that's why people are right behind each other. It's not, you're not down to hundreds of seconds yet. You're still seeing someone do one full rotation more than has ever been done before. And it oh, just blows wow. people's minds. So the athletes just, they love seeing that because it's like, wow, all of a sudden the ceiling's gone up. 
and it probably gives them hope that you know I can do that you know yeah. I can take the next step or what can I do to to be the next innovator and so that that's a really it's a really impressive time to be involved in a sport it's something that's quite just that constant improvement it's uh you don't know where it's going to end so there's <laughs> there is no ceiling there that's really exciting and I guess that's a lot of the fun part I imagine in your position in your role and I found something you'd read in or a, a quote from you talking about when you're the New Zealand team shift the mission right like you're championing the needs of athletes inside all these complex high performance environments and your role you need to kind of ensure and this was it that the New Zealand team promotes athlete mana well-being and performance at all times throughout the games and we know that we know that incredibly capable so it's about creating an environment that makes sure the pressures and the size of the olympics doesn't become a burden for them and i really like repeat that latter part the size of the olympics doesn't become a burden for them so in your role what strategies or approach do you have to help athletes with the pressures of such an elite massive event yeah and, and look it is different if people have never had their you know the the opportunity to experience the Olympics, they're very different. So if you think of a normal world championship, say in any sport, it's only your sport that's there. So you go along, there might be a bit of security or something. It's kind of, it might be different to just a normal regatta and rowing or, you know, a cycling track event. It's it slightly steps up, but it's really still just your sport. It's all the same people you're used to competing against and you go to a world championship and you compete. That, that's awesome. And that's, you know, the, the level of sport is right up there with the Olympics. But you go to the Olympics and all of a sudden there's your sport plus 16 or 20 others all getting together. So there's different people. You're living together in a kind of a communal environment. Um, all of a sudden you're using transport systems because if you go outside of the, you know, the accredited zones or areas, it's very difficult to get around. So there's all these different overlays that are completely different to what you would normally do. And if you don't know about it, if you're not aware about it, or you let that get to you, and that's before we're even talking about the media presence, um, it can, it can throw an athlete off their game. So an athlete who's incredibly capable, sometimes first time they go into that Olympic environment, will, could be spooked, absolutely spooked by it. I mean, it's just something that they're not used to. So to try and prevent that, all of the national sport organisations work pretty closely with their athletes to explain the environment, to make sure that people are aware, and that's bringing in athletes who have been there and done it, or coaches that have been there and done it, or team psychologists, people who have been there can talk about it and try and normalise it. So if people are aware of what's going to happen to them when they go in, it's not, you know, it's not frightening. It's, oh, yeah, we've talked about this. So we've talked about what I'd do if I saw this and I didn't like it. And so by being pre-prepared, you know, people don't get overawed. And I think that's actually what makes, allows them to do what they're capable of doing. So our role is really just to work with the sport organisations, make sure they've done that kind of piece of work in the background. And certainly in the winter sports, we know they have, and they've done that really well. And so it's just make sure we create an environment that allows them to be themselves doesn't let the Olympic overlay get in the road or, you know, make things more difficult. So it's almost to, to make it feel like it is just another competition, but people know that they're wearing that fern on their chest and, you know, that they're going to be proud of that and the country's right behind them at home. Yes, it's 
what you mentioned before about controlling what you can control, right? Control the controllable. And in that instance, from what you explain is going in, you do have resources. You have athletes who have been trainers, staff, everyone else who's been. So yeah, if it's someone's first time, it's like, oh, it's all right. You know, we train next to each other every day. This is just one thing you haven't done yet. That sounds like it kind of de-stresses or like demystifies the experience so they know what they're going into. Yeah, and I think, look, as a, as a program evolves, whether you're talking about athletics, sailing, snow sports, um, you know, anything, where you've had success, people who have had that success have amazing knowledge they've built up that they then impart through their program. And so people start to, it's much easier to tell people about what's coming when you've been there and experienced it and seen it. And, and I think that's what's happened in New Zealand sport in general as the success has got better and better and across a wider range of sports, there's been more knowledge imparted throughout the system. And that allows everyone to benefit from someone else's knowledge. So, you know, Peter Burling and Blair Chook, what they do in their boat, they can talk about planning and preparing and getting ready for everything. And then that knowledge can be shared with someone who's in athletics or a completely different sport. And they'll pick the gems out of it and go, yeah, and that, that allows the, you know, the system to build and the system to be stronger and supportive of athletes. And that includes the Olympic Committee, High Performance Sport New Zealand and the National Sport Organisation. So if they're all working together, you get the best possible outcome. Oh, yes. And that's, again, what we kind of spoke about before we started was sharing like your knowledge. There'll be a lot of people who are really curious about your experience through things. And so trying to exactly share your successes share your experiences and not only will that motivate people if it was successful if it wasn't then okay those things do happen um I really wanted to know so you're helping the athletes right so they can perform at their best they can be themselves how do you deal with your own pressures if you have them not only in the role of the shift mission, but as a leader in high performance sport do you feel pressures in that position yeah, good question. I, I don't feel a lot, and I maybe that's a bad thing. I'm not sure. Look, I think that's part of living in Wanaka. <laughs> I look yeah. at the mountains, or I jump on a bike, or I go for a walk, or I paddle on the lake, whatever it is. You know, I mean, there's there's easy ways to uh, release any kind of tension that's there. I think um, I, I think it comes back to the same as it does for an athlete. If you're planned and prepared, you yeah. know, where you're going and what you're doing and what could trip you up, then when it happens or something, you know, gets in the road or it's a challenge, you can deal with it a lot better. If you haven't thought about those scenarios or, you know, have a plan B or a plan C, that's when it gets pretty stressful, I think. So I always uh, I do what most people who end up in leadership positions are. They surround themselves with people who are way smarter than them. And that's, uh, you know, the team creates the outcomes. It's never one individual in my experience. Yes. Um, I'm going to segue. I'm probably going to come back to this because I'm very interested. <laughs> but each interview I have, I ask this core question of tall poppy syndrome because that's what drove the podcast to begin with. And I, I do still stand with there is tall poppy syndrome in a negative sense. But every person I speak to is like, that is evolving. So I'm learning. Could you please give me in your own words, what is tall poppy syndrome and have you experienced or seen it? 
Yeah, it's, it is a really interesting one. I think New Zealand has been, we've been world-class and tall poppy forever. You know, and it's that, it's that ability, which I, I don't subscribe to, of actually cutting people down, you know, not celebrating someone's success, but actually being critical of their success or they got there because they were privileged or they got there because such and such helped them or this person didn't. And I don't know why it exists. I don't know where it came from, what's behind it. But I don't see it being as bad as it was. I think it's uh, people are more aware, I think, of an athlete's kind of wellness. And so they're, they're trying to, you know, or their well-being. And so I think people are a little more attuned to the fact that, you know, being critical for the sake of it actually has an impact on a person. It's not it's not just someone that you have a right to chop off at the knees. It's actually, hey, that's a, that's a human being out there that's uh, doing the best they can possibly be. Support them. You know, give them a hand up if they need it, but uh, don't criticize for the sake of it. Thank you. I, I like that. I appreciate it. And I want to ask too, your work involves a lot of certified high performers. Absolutely. What message would you send to the larger community that p- could perhaps give some more insight into these athletes' minds as you kind of touched upon? Yeah, look, I think every athlete's different. And that's actually what's, it's really hard to take a system approach. I mean, I think what, first and foremost, in any kind of high performance system, whether it be in a team environment at games or just an athlete entering high performance for the first time, it's recognising that the athlete's in the middle of it. You know, everything that's done should be to help the athlete be better. And uh, I think, you know, you go back to Dave Curry and some of the former demissions of New Zealand Olympic teams and when Dave stopped marching at the front of a parade and went to the back, internationally, that was, you don't do that. You know, the, the chief person should be up front. Dave's view very simply was the athletes are the chief people in this team. We're there to support them. So the management goes to the very, very back of the line. And I think that's, those kind of things are changing. And it's, I feel it more and more through the whole sports system where people realise they've got to look after the athlete, create the environment around them to let them flourish. And if you do that, as we said earlier on, you know, you won't always be successful. Not everyone gets to the top. That's just physically impossible. Um, but if you create the right environment, give people a chance to be the best they can be, then you know, hopefully the outcome will take care of itself. And that could be greatness or it could just be a performance that makes someone be able to retire knowing that they, they gave it everything and they achieved at the level that they were capable of. When it comes to retirement, when athletes do get to that stage, do you find yourself still being involved with them post them being a part of the winter sports or like just high performance in general? Is there still that connection post retirement? Yeah, I think there is. And the more personal the connection is, then that it comes back to that conversation around treating the athlete as an individual. And so if they are, if you've got a personal relationship with them, you've built up, you've got some kind of um, shared interest or something like that absolutely you do you know you retain that kind of connection forever you know I mean there's athletes uh, who I worked with you know way back in the day in the all black environment that we don't see each other all the time but as soon as we actually see each other you just go back you fall back into where you were and that's based on personal relationships that's you know that's the kind of thing that I think endures all time and that, that's one of the cool things with sport the experiences are large and so you can fall back to things where you go remember this or and away it goes it just triggers a memory and that's the kind of thing that you, you hold on to forever 
Yes, and speaking of memories, I think back to your initial role when you're with Rugby New Zealand, sorry, the Rugby New Zealand Union. What was it like being right there amongst it? Because in your position now, you're kind of getting to work with everyone, I can imagine. But in that role, are there differences when you're kind of working as the trainer, physical advisor, you're right there, to when maybe you're in more of, obviously, the leadership management what are some fond memories you have of being like in the nitty gritty or is it still kind of like that what I guess I just want to reminisce a little bit on those yeah. rugby days yeah that's yeah, no, a look really 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 interesting question I think the um what was different when I came on so 1995 rugby world cup in South Africa you know I mean the, the Nelson Mandela moment was uh you know to be in a stadium to see that you know world cup final the All Blacks had played a different brand of rugby the whole way through. Um, it, we'd got to the end of 1994, year before the season, Laurie Main sitting down with the team at a debrief in Queenstown and going, well, if we play like we're playing at the moment, we don't have a chance of winning the World Cup. What are we going to do differently? And so we agreed that, you know, being fitter and playing a faster style of rugby was going to be one of the big points of difference. And so there was a huge push uh, for probably or seven or eight months where the players who at that time were still amateurs were being asked to train like professionals. So some of them were still holding down jobs and then doing a massive amount of training outside of that um, to try and get to that state to actually take themselves off to the World Cup and have a chance of winning it. Uh, but there was a thing called the Coca-Cola Tour, which was a double-decker bus that went around the country um, trying to connect with the small communities, but in every community, we do kind of fit some kind of fitness-oriented piece of work for the athletes, but involve the community. And just the funny things that happened through that work, I mean, it's hilarious, you know, you just got people the likes of Jonah Lomu hitting a tackling bag and someone saying, oh, I could hold that up, and Jonah hitting it, and you see the poor person somersaulting back four or five times. It was a, that, those kind of things are just awesome. <laughs> hilarious memories people just realizing that hey these people were a little bit different but being able to connect with them and I think that's uh, it's the beauty of New Zealand being small you know you can touch heroes you could sit on a chairlift next to Zoe Sadowski Senate or Nico Porteous on the mountain or you know you walk into a supermarket and the person that holds the door opens Blair Cheek or Pete Burling you know I mean it's it's pretty cool we're very very lucky we can be around great athletes and see them and everything on a regular basis. And I think that's, yeah, it's pretty special and a bigger country doesn't happen quite so much. Yeah. We feel a very strong connection and so proud of them because odds are you or someone, you know, is like two degrees of separation away. Yeah. That's yeah. incredible. And I know too, comparing also great story, by the way, from, from the 1995 and the Coca-Cola tour since then though there's been so many involvements in terms of like social media or yeah that sense of actually I can know the athlete and I can directly message them which sometimes feeds into that like you said you don't subscribe to the negative of it but people can you know like subscribe and send messages how has it been for you in the high performance sport world as social media is like presence has just grown more and more prominent what challenges and opportunities has that kind of presented you know I think that the opportunities is probably the easy one because yeah. I think athletes who are very social media savvy can create their own brand 
and off their brand, they can they can use their personality or whatever they want to project, and they have just platforms where they can put that out there. So they can they can be the clown, or they can be serious, or they can present themselves in whatever way they like. And I think that's an awesome opportunity because that is that's personal. You know, that's about the uh, the individual. I guess that the downside, the negative, is absolutely that. Um, and, and it does come back to your tall poppy, but the idea where someone just wants to say something cutting, the keyboard warrior that isn't thinking about the person, that just goes straight in with a comment. And, you know, that, that can be pretty hurtful for athletes. But my experiences with, you know, most of the, uh, the snow sports athletes in particular, they're young and so they've grown up with social media and they're really, really comfortable with going, well, that's just one person's opinion, move on. They... Um, they, they learn or they're taught as they go through high performance now how to deal with it, you know, what what not to take on board and or they have support systems to fall back on if um, they read something they don't like or it's personally hurtful or they, they can talk to someone about that and they get some good advice about how to park it, you know, wrap a box around it straight out the window, whatever, and move on. That's so true. I didn't, I mean, I could appreciate but didn't really think about that yeah this kind of generation coming through we know no different like I I had a time without social media but I don't really remember it and so it's interesting thinking even about like a personal brand everyone who has a social media has a personal brand whether or not they want to recognize that or not and I think what I see a lot with New Zealand sports people which is really cool is they recognize their position and even if they didn't ask to be leaders in society, they know that they are because they're accessible, right? And there's young people, older people, whoever have um, the ability to view. And I think they really notice that they are role models, which is pretty cool. I think goes back to what you've said about it being a small country where we feel that connection is they recognize, our oh, I'm being a role model. And I think in general, we really live up to it. So that's something we can be super proud of. And I'm sure you are um, with everyone you work with. Oh, absolutely. And I think the Kiwis by very nature are humble. And I think humility actually runs pretty much through, you know, most most Kiwis. We don't like beating our chests and saying how good we are to the world and telling everyone we're better than them. We, we just rather let actions take care of that. You know, they if we're good enough, we're good enough, um, but we don't. We don't overstate our abilities. And I think that's actually really, it's a really important trait. It's something that does help connect. It means if you're a humble athlete who's been incredibly successful, and I'd use, you know, Dame Lisa Carrington as a brilliant example, you know, I mean, just comes across present the way she presents herself, social media, in front of media, uh, or in person, is just such a humble person. But when you look at what she's achieved, in other places, she'd be absolutely idolised. You know, you'd have security guards walking around. You wouldn't be allowed to see her, talk to her or anything. It, that's special. You know, and I think, I hope that's something we never lose in New Zealand. It's that uh, that ability to connect again comes back time and time again for me. It's just athletes are people. And if they're people living in a community that is supported by the community, Everyone feels like they've invested a little bit in that person to help them get there. They're proud of them. If they don't get there, they feel really bad for them and they provide support. And that allows allows athletes to go on just being people, not you know put on this pedestal where if they don't do as well as they could have in any particular event, 
that they feel like they're going to be chopped off at the knees. And that's where I think the tall poppy, in some respects, is going away. Yeah. But social media is the antithesis of that almost, where it can actually be the thing that brings it back. And that made me think too, you mentioning Dame Lisa Carrington, who exactly is probably the epitome of a role model in New Zealand and, and abroad. You must get very um, distracted by the amount of sport in your role, not only winter, so you've got the winter sports, you've been with the sailing team, you've been with the rugby, and obviously the Summer Olympics too. Are there any particular ones you keep a really close eye on that you're personally most interested in, or is it all sport? I love all sport. I really do. I, uh, you know, it, it's funny. You go through cycles, absolutely, where you follow some in particular. But I, I mean, I followed the snow sports really closely because of that personal connection. You know, I mean, the, uh, the obviously rugby's something that I worked with for nine years, played before that, and so I, I have a passion there and follow it. But different, you know. I don't have the personal connections with the players anymore. So it's a, I'm now watching a game rather than people I know playing a sport. And so you move with things like that. So I take real interest in sports where I know people or, you know, I've got personal connections with them. But I love watching sail, GP. I love watching the, the sports that are innovating and actually getting faster or more edgy. You know, I love that real action sport piece, whether it be mountain bikes, you know, sailing on foiling boats or kite surfing or um, surfing, you know, any, anything that's really challenging the status quo doing things differently I, I love seeing people break the mold oh excellent that makes me think too and I don't know if you follow uh f1 driving I got into it because of drive to survive um on Netflix I think most people can admit yeah. to that and I know I believe Liam I forget his surname in New Zealand is making his way up through the ranks and it's cool because I was already sort of watching and now I see oh there's a oh, there's a New Zealander maybe coming up yeah you do we feel this real attachment and pride and with the winter olympics the summer olympics the youth olympics there's a lot for us to feel really proud about so i just kind of want to emphasize what i'm really getting from you and people are listening but they can't see we've just been smiling this whole time it's like there's a lot to be proud of and even with social media to jump on board with people's momentum and tall poppy obviously exists in negative senses but I think it's more of us being afraid internally like oh I don't want to it's, it's like a tall yeah. poppy in ourselves as opposed to the societal experience is kind of what I'm gathering from this conversation does that sound fair yeah absolutely 100% you've nailed it I love it I have one last question and I will actually like I said I could keep talking but um <laughs> I have one last question and it's just a little fun one to sign off is if you had to have one meal for the rest of your life breakfast lunch dinner what is it going to be oh breakfast lunch and dinner I, I was going to go straight for you know butter chicken there I love a good <laughs> spicy butter chicken but breakfast mm, it's, it makes it slightly more challenging uh yeah I, I think it would have to be my go-to have to be a butter chicken <laughs> So you just might not, you might do the fasting thing until you feel like it's appropriate to eat butter chicken. Yeah, I think it might be a slightly later breakfast. <laughs> breakfast in early afternoon, maybe. Oh, and I, I have to ask then, off that, you've got to travel to a, a lot of wicked places 
through your work. Are there any particular cuisines or like memories you've had from traveling that you're like, oh, that that was good? Are you do you remember the food memories? Oh yes, there's some food memories you will definitely not forget, like um, traveling to Argentina with rugby and your plate comes out and it's just a steak, and I do mean just a steak that's about as thick as your arm. And then you, know, you serve that at eleven o'clock at night and about three o'clock in the morning when you're staring at the staring at the ceiling trying to go to sleep. It's just classic things, you know, different uh, traveling to Beijing ahead of the 2008 Summer Olympics. We uh, we did a number of site visits looking at all the different, you know, competition venues and where athletes would be staying and part of that planning. And going down some of the off the beaten track and actually eating in some of the markets out the back and I'm not quite sure what was on some of those skewers, but it definitely uh, was not something we'd be eating in New Zealand. And uh, yes, some of those experiences absolutely would live with you forever. Wicked. I think sport has the ability to really take people a lot of cool places. And I know for some athletes, like with rowing, you're primarily looking at the lakes or the rivers, whatever it is in the water sport. And I can imagine with winter sports, same thing like snow snow but the views and the vistas must just be incredible it's such an exciting environment for you to be in and I'm looking forward to what you have coming up especially in these this next two cycles of things yeah I I thank you so much I I don't know if there's anything else I could have asked you without just going off and off so thank you so much for spending the time and being willing to share it with me I is there any final things you have to say or you feel like you have platform for right now oh look I, I think the um, my big thing is for anyone listening that you know ever thinks about knocking an athlete down just remember it's a person you know that that person is trying to be as good as they can possibly be and they don't uh, they don't ever try to stumble if they stumble or if something doesn't go right it, that's not what they tried to do and it's just let's pick them back up again and make sure they uh they, they live to fight another day and they, they feel like they're supported and get right out there because New Zealand's got a huge advantage based on its size and that two degrees of separation. And we, we really can get behind athletes and give them a kind of support that allows them to deliver. You know, we talk about punching above our weight. I think uh, New Zealand absolutely does that. And it's because people do get behind. I think it's a collective effort to help athletes get to where they can be and long may that carry on perfectly said I think we're high performers because we have individuals across the spectrum and you leading the charge I'm so grateful that I could speak to you and kind of show a little bit behind the curtain everyone in the game would know who you are but others probably don't get the opportunity to experience talking to you and hearing hearing your side of things so Thank you. I, I think what you just said too was brilliantly said. There's a person behind what's going on. So thank you so much for spending the time with me today. And I I really, really appreciate it. Uh, absolute pleasure, Grace. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Tall Poppy Talk. We'll see you next time. Feel free to check us out on socials, YouTube, and the website. Thanks for today's guest. And we'll see you all next time. Take care. Be kind.